Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of the Warfighter Podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello. And a week you're not too ill. I know, hey, not too ill. On the flip side, I want to ask how are you, but the last time I spoke to you, your response was, can't speak for long, Tom, I'm halfway up an active volcano. I mean, it's all true. I, mean, I think our listeners need to understand that we always try and push the limits with this podcast. So <laughs> I had this idea to make podcasting history, really, by doing the first... I had all planned the first recording on the side of an active volcano. I mean, why not? <laughs> Two things happened. One, our, our guests had to pull out. Well, that bad. Uh, it turns out that if you go up an active volcano, sometimes it's too active and they shut it down. I didn't know they could stop you going. But... Have you not Have you not watched the documentaries on Netflix about active volcanoes, Colin? So, you know, these things, you got to like take the feedback on board. All right, we got to the volcano. I took the microphone and everything. I was all ready to go. Mm. Um, but maybe we need to pick one that's less active. <laughs> And then we can make it happen. I don't know of anyone that's done that. No, for good reason, Colin. If you've got to get your kicks from somehow, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Each to their own. Right, should we, uh, should we crack on with this week's episode? Yes. Before we do that, we do have to give great thanks to our sponsor, Babcock. So you don't have to listen to us blabbing on about website software or a VPN. We just say thanks very much to Babcock, who frankly give us free reign to talk to whoever we like. Yeah, well, you know, get like last episode with Say Chats, it was just an amazing chat that just came out of nowhere and we had an amazing conversation, which I think from the feedback we've received, it's, it's gone down extremely well. So that's great. And I think this episode is again another left field episode, but I think in a really positive way. I think it's just going to add that extra color to the tapestry of what we're trying to kind of weave. Sorry about this analogy with the Warfire podcast. So, the guest we've got for this week is Owen Thompson, the founder and CEO of Cambridge Future Tech. And I won't go into too much detail because we talk about what he does for a living pretty much as, as a kind of key facet of the conversation. But this conversation is about understanding how best that we can use different routes to capital to unlock the potential within that's kind of stored within our nation. The IP that's buried of very, very smart people and how do we enable them to drive success in business and it's not only that, we talk about Owen's journey. And I think it's a great journey from a, a veteran, a service leaver who joined the military as a non-grad and had a very specialist role that you can't really do in the civilian world as much. It's frowned upon as a fighter pilot. And yet he's managed to find his way and through mentoring, through speaking to or being mentored, through networking, through self-education and exploration to where he is now. And it's just really quite inspiring and interesting. Yeah, I, th I think it's a bit of twofer. I mean, we, we're very interested in that crossing the chasm. How do startups or people with an idea get from an initial piece of funding to actual products? This, this, is, this is the reason of the discussion is, right, what, what are options? And Owen lives in this mystical world of venture capital and stuff. But yeah, in itself, actually, he's quite impressive because I look at his current role and go, how did you end up doing that? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> You know, as good as your previous career was, you know, <laughs> yeah. you've kind of like done all this stuff. It just goes to show, I think often people like that, I've said before, no one's got around to telling them they couldn't do that yet, or at least they didn't listen. So they yeah. just went and did it. Well, without further ado, here's the chat. Hello, Owen. Hi, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. This episode, we continue our deliberation on, you know, what I call crossing the chasm or valley death or innovator's dilemma. Um, looking at how we're always interested in how that innovation gets into the hands of users, usually by funding in some way. And I thought your background was quite interesting because you've done quite a number of things, but it'd be great just to start off with your 
early experience uh, in the military and take us from there. Yeah, it's funny. Thanks, Colin. I spent a lot of time trying to explain my background to venture capitalists and um, similar in the tech industry, where sometimes having started a first career in the Air Force and as a pilot on the Typhoon is not necessarily very easy to relate to what I'm doing now. The story that I usually tell, which which I do think is legit, is um, so I did 14 years in the Air Force. I flew Typhoons through and through, based mainly in obviously Lincolnshire and up at Lossiemouth. And towards the back end of that, I specialized as an electronic warfare instructor, as many do. And I think that coming from a family of software engineers and starting to get really down into the tech side, it allowed me to start to um, exercise my inner geek. And then that fed me naturally through to my subsequent positions in BA systems. When I left, I spent four years in BA systems, transitioning through initially as an aircrew advisor for weapon systems and then into head of training, which was a, a central training team role that was was newly set up to build that team to look at new business development initiatives, particularly across the Middle East, and specifically to look at uh, next generation training strategies for BA systems. And then I moved into where I am now, where I run a deep tech venture builder based in Cambridge, which is where we work with both academic research groups from the universities and also corporate research groups and also serial founders to co-found deep tech companies, which will go on to have a reasonable scaling potential such that they would provide the returns that a VC would expect from a portfolio. So we're building out a value portfolio of, of companies. And sorry, just jumping in there, you just moved into, there's, I, I think there's a story there. Like, you, you know, one minute you're at BAE and the next minute you've moved into this, this whole new, essentially, industry. Like, is there a story there? Like, how did you find yourself in this amazing, doing this amazing new job and in this amazing new sector? The head of training role at BAE was really interesting for me because it's the first time I started to interact on a level where I was starting to look at partnerships with SMEs. When you look at the acquisition of technologies or the adoption of technologies into a large corporate, the tool sets that you have available to you are vast, but also the kind of restrictions that you operate within, as everybody's aware, are quite well established and can be a little bit slower or a little bit more thorough as they naturally need to be as so many processes are in place with, with a large corporate. And what I found with that role was that I think specifically for the next generation training strategy, we had an awareness that we weren't going to R&D every single bit of tech internally. And so we naturally lent into the teams that were looking at M&A strategy or partnering with SMEs and other larger corporates. So got, got quite deep into the world of analyzing different startups and starting to see what strengths they had, how they were pitching themselves and how we could work with them or how we could support them. I had done in parallel, naturally coming out of the military completely unqualified and I hadn't even been to university. I was trying to uh, also immerse myself in a fairly unnatural career change. And in the background, I was studying entrepreneurship at Cambridge. And I wrote a thesis on the military industrial complex, and I was really keen to understand how SMEs can engage with the, with the larger contracts and how they can really get into some of those more juicy subcontracting opportunities with the primes. And there I was sat in the, in the training team trying to facilitate some of that and wanting to help as many startups as I could, but it all needs to be strategically relevant and there's only so much budget and there's, there's a strategy for that. I am firstly shocked to find out that our typhoon pilots don't have degrees. This is outrageous. I'm, <laughs> I'm as a disciple. It's also again, I'm glad I asked that question because it, it shows the importance of creating an exit strategy when you're coming out of the military and also you know positioning yourself and you're being that natural British military kind of humility about actually your skill sets and your background as well. So that certainly has helped me position you a bit better now. Yeah, right. And a few, so a few of us slip the net every year. They're called direct entrance, and you get straight into the air force and you, you start flying. I had applied for 
a couple of degrees to go and do maths and physics. But then when you get the call that says there's a cockpit available now, if you'd like to come in as a direct entrant. 100%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a no brainer at that stage. But to be fair, I did do part-time degree in the military as well, but it also wasn't particularly relevant outside of the military. It was a master's degree in air power from King's <laughs> <laughs> They've actually discontinued it now, which is hilarious. <laughs> so I'm like very well swept up on air power, but nobody really needs that in the high street, apart from maybe BAE systems. So I think we're going to come back to all this, but just to just cross check our thinking, I, I'm still really up a lot of this, so I'm behind and I know you've done a bit of reading, but can you just summarize in your mind the sort of innovator's dilemma? People come up with an idea or there's a problem to be solved and often there's there's this huge gap between someone that desperately needs the problem solved and someone who's got or even an idea of a solution. How, how do you characterize that? Yeah, at a broad level, you might look at the innovator's dilemma as the fact that if an established player in a certain sector innovates and comes up with a better solution, they might put themselves out of business or damage their own business lines. And that's a really weird transition. And so going through like in, you know, just a very, uh, like a layman's example of someone, if there's a company, Toyota selling petrol cars, and then they come up with a new type of EV, electric vehicle, they might lower the, the sales on their own, elect- their own petrol cars. That's like a, you know, just a very like lower level example. And what you might find is that in a military and particularly a training and simulation sense, this is something that's being lived out at the moment. Very kind of relevant to this podcast is that, of course, when you start to increase, for instance, aircrew synthetic training, you lower the, the need for live aircraft flying. And when you're a live aircraft flying supplier manufacturer, when you're an aircraft manufacturer, that can be an issue. And I think at BAE Systems, we knew we were ramping down production of the hall, things like that. So the question really in developing a central training team was to have a look at where do we sit in the future and where do we still have a place in the long term at a strategic level as a prime in training and simulation if we're lowering aircraft or changing the nature of aircraft manufacture. For me, from there, then I moved on. I needed to sort of diversify my CV, I guess, a little bit. And I was very interested to get even more into the tech side. So ended up applying for and moving into a role as the general manager for advanced technology solutions in BA systems, which was a truly epic result. It's like the uh, job description of dreams. So I went and managed the toaster site, working on microwave materials with teams of people doing everything from R&D all the way through to manufacturing, engineering, and then manufacturing. And exactly the same down on, on one of our Filton sites where we focus on printed electronics and MEMS. So lots of uh, getting very deep into the tech side, which I thoroughly enjoyed, though most of the time didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Digging into how does innovation work in large defense companies as you see it? Yes. I mean, naturally, most of what happens in a large corporate is customer funded. And so where the customer wants to fund R&D, you can do some R&D. Where you might get an innovation partner like DSTL with a, a substantial budget line split between several primes, there are quite a few projects like that where there is some real true R&D going on in the back of those labs and some very smart people coming up with some very innovative solutions. The problem then is getting through to customer adoption. And that kind of relates back to the what you were talking about earlier with crossing the chasm, Colin. So even the corporates will will have to deal with that. If they're developing something new through one of those R&D contracts, how then does it reach the end customer, even with all the connections that they have and all the facilities in, in partnerships? It's actually how do you broach a bit of tech that's been developed at TRL 1 or 2, get it up to TRL 9, where it can be then offloaded onto a number of customers, which makes it cost efficient. And so what I saw a lot of in the advanced technology solutions area was developing new technologies using 
a variety of mechanisms, some of which was related to working and partnering with universities and academic groups. And at the same time, back in Cambridge, I was starting to mentor on some of the accelerators in the city and down in London and starting to experience firsthand what the experience was of, say, a PhD student reaching the end of their studies with a cool invention who wants to commercialize it, get into whatever sector it is and, and create their own startup and spit out of the university and how that process works or does not work in some instances. And I got quite drawn into that and it's quite a fascinating thing. And it led me to the thesis that due to the complexities in that process, specifically looking now at, say, a PhD student with a bit of tech, there is a massive amount of suppressed intellectual property in the UK that could be commercialized or could have an impact both for everything from ESG policies through to defense. And I think that's a real shame. And we've got some of the top universities in the world in the UK, but we probably do have a, we have amassed a load of intellectual property that we're not utilizing. And it was on that basis that I wanted to leave and set up something different that could support that specific critical, critical gap, which is in some literature referred to as the critical capital gap between kind of the idea phase and the point at which you can actually raise investment from venture capital or otherwise. But it's really not a critical capital gap in anything other than the fact that you can't really deploy capital in there because often those startups don't have teams in place or they don't have products ready to go and they don't have the right KPIs to be able to do diligence. And so you have this really weird gap and it's really acute in deep tech, whereas maybe in a business to business software type environment, there are ways through it a little bit more smoothly. But where you're looking at the intersection of something like semiconductor and or robotics, there's a lot more cost involved in developing those products through to the point where they're investable. And do you see some current startups, let's call them, that are doing it well, like crossing that gap? Yeah, there are tons. And what's been really interesting over the last three years of running this company is seeing the different approaches to it. So as you're very well aware, Colin, we've got startups that are revenue generating out the gates that didn't need to raise a pre-seed round and never need to touch VC initially. But then there are some myths here, right? So let me clarify a couple of myths. The objective is not to raise money. The raising money is there as, as a necessity to get to where you need to be. So if you can bootstrap through the early phases or if you have another mechanism of actually generating revenue very quickly, of course, that's the optimum and it's going to reduce dilution in your company. And so raising money shouldn't be the objective. And equally, when you've raised that money, that shouldn't be the achievement. You've now got shareholders and you've now got milestones that you have to hit and different pressures that you didn't have before. So that's when the real challenge begins. On that note, how does a company, let's say, I agree with you that it shouldn't be the aim to raise money. So let's say the company doesn't need to raise money at this stage, but they want to work with an organization like yours because of all the additional wraparound support, which we can go on to talk about a little bit later on. So how does that company interface with you and how does that actually work? Yeah. Okay. So that this sort of brings me on to the second myth a little bit, or not myth, misunderstanding. Generally, the reason to take investment in your company is because you want to achieve a certain scaling profile. So in this ecosystem, there's a lot of discussion about becoming a zombie company or a lifestyle company. It's a, an angel investor's worst nightmare that they've invested in a company that then successfully maintains itself and pays all the staff but never provides any returns so you should only really look at taking on investment or going down that avenue if you believe that you're you want to create something or you have the potential within your ip or your business model to create something that's massively scalable and so the impetus to work with an organization like mine is that you want to take that next step and go and build something that's actually going to be groundbreaking and have a global impact or have a, have a you know, disruptive element to it, something that might come in and push one of the primes out of one of those market positionings in at least a certain sector or a certain element of that sector or a certain product line. 
and that's specifically what we see within within the startup environment. The ones that are the most successful are the ones that can go and disrupt a business model or disrupt a product line and go and get in there. And that's why often the kind of end result of those startups is acquisition. And, and that goes full circle back to the innovators dilemma where you might acquire a startup to just shut it down <laughs> because it's going to disrupt a model. And I've seen that happen. So it's interesting you mentioned that about the sort of lifestyle business. How do you know if your idea is just you know, because there are businesses that are just should just be forever four guys in a room, guys and girls in a room making enough money, nothing wrong with that, but will never be big. Sometimes it's easy to think your idea is the next big thing. How do you know when something is transformative or disruptive versus? Yeah. And as you say, as you say, Colin, like there's nothing wrong with setting up a lifestyle business. In fact, if you can set up a lifestyle business that maintains your standard of life and that of your co founders and your employees, and you're happy with that, and that's great, fantastic. Essentially, you need to find the nutters that want to go and do massive scaling, <laughs> go and run headfirst into scaling into a sector. The way that you can establish whether you're going to have that impact or not is difficult. And even in the last 24 hours, I've read some articles that say it's akin to you know playing roulette, essentially, like just going in and gambling. But there, there is actually, when you look at the stats and the data behind the returns of the VC community that essentially do this for a living, they're not just throwing things out randomly. They are making judgments based on data. And so the way that we will process that when we're looking at deal flow for different types of startups or intellectual property potential, the potential market impact of what we're doing is that we'll go into quite deep levels of market research. So we have expertise in our team. You know, our head of research, James Hayward, has been working in, in market research for over a decade. And he's we will go into the level of depth of market research that were you to go and ask for that through a consultancy would cost you tens and tens and tens of thousands of pounds. And we will do that when we've got a certain level of confidence on a startup before we then go and engage and, and devote more resource to it and really get deep into that world. So there are different ways of doing market research, but generally the most effective we've seen is speaking to people, speaking to customers and actually getting out there and having those conversations. And just coming back to what Colin asked, it would be actually really useful, uh, certainly for me, to understand like a real life example. So if it's, it's the one that, that you've taken through a process, a company that you could talk about where you've gone through that due diligence, you brought them on board and, and they're starting to have a, you know, a positive impact or drive to that kind of success curve that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I can talk to, we've got a company that we spun out of Newcastle University last year. It took us about 15 months to get through the whole process till we, from first kind of spotting the IP in the research group through to it being a fully formed, fully funded startup with a team in place. Their innovation is in is an edge AI accelerator. So they work in artificial intelligence and making that process more efficient. And it's complex technology that's derived from actually an old Russian discovery from a couple of decades ago to do with propositional based logic. And the end result is that you have this incredible markup inefficiency for doing inference tasks on the edge for AI challenges. And it was really interesting when we first looked at it, they said to us, the scientists in the research group, they said, okay, this thing gives you a 10,000 X improvement on the, you know, neuromorphic equivalents or whatever. We were like, yeah, okay, that we get, the, we get those kind of stats a lot. Generally, professors and, and that sort of people don't lie, but it did seem quite far-fetched. So we took the ex-head of the machine learning group at ARM, sent him up to Newcastle to go and have a look at this thing. And this guy's um, fantastic. He's, uh, we work with him quite a lot now. It used to be his job to go around and kind of close down these sorts of propositions and just figure out which ones were real and then basically acquire them. And um, he sat down, he went out for the day and then he just sat back at the end of the day and there's this big sigh and he was so disappointed. He went, oh, bloody hell. He said, you're going to have to build this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it's not 10,000x, it's 9,998. 
you know, so we were like, yeah, yeah, Roger. <laughs> but then we get down into the real technical detail. We still have to get people to come and look at it. And the point that's important is, does the market even want it? Is it actually useful? So then we have an extended period during the spin-out process of going out and having those conversations with the market and trying to understand it does look like a bit of a disruptor. Okay, but does that mean it can be adopted? Do people need new tool sets to use it? Will it integrate with existing architecture? It's quite a complex journey and it's not until, and maybe we still don't know, but we have enough confidence that we think there's a potential there and we were able to raise money on it very quickly when it spun out. You know, it's looking like a true success at this stage, but then it's still extremely early. It's only just completed a pre-seed round and the team are in place. We recruited a, a real industry stalwart as CEO and they're off. And so now like we're backing that company to the hilt because we think it's got huge potential, but really you'll never truly know for a number of years, you know, until it starts commercializing its product. And this is one of the problems in what we would call deep tech, where it does take longer to reach commercial revenue. Often these companies will go through an acquisition before they hit any commercial revenue. Yeah, because uh, I think one of the examples you did use, because it's nice to pick on people, but you did mention Anduril, which I think some of our listeners might be aware of, as someone that's actually really having a good go at disrupting defense and trying to change the way things are done. Yeah, and, and good on them. I find Anduril a really interesting case study, and I'm not an expert, and I've only read you know what's available online. And um, there's been some really interesting profiling reports on Anduril recently, and they're expanding their footprint in the UK. So they're obviously doing okay, but from what I understand, their model is to disrupt the actual procurement process, which we all know needs a bit of updating, and they targeted the US, and then they're moving across to the UK. So in disrupting the procurement system itself and that business model innovation, which is really ambitious and needs needs a bit of um, capital behind it, which they have, they're then able to start to filter in startups in the back end. So they have an M&A strategy that involves acquiring different types of tech from cutting edge startups and then accelerating them through that newly found disruptive procurement process that they've been able to in install. And I think that's really novel. And I think it's offering a different path for startups. When I go back to that uh, paper on the military industrial complex written back in 2018, there was no reference in there to getting acquired by a mid-sized prime and feeding into a large defense contract through that route. It's all about subcontracting into the right avenues. And so I really like what Andrew and are doing. I find it very interesting and I think it's definitely a case to follow. But they're, again, what you might call a unicorn, and there's another word for it, because they've got quite a unique valuation. And what about the rest of us? You know, are we, are we either held to working through a prime or working through a, another larger startup? Andrew turned up with a lot of cash in pocket, right? So, yeah. like, you know, a serial founder with a big rep who can easily raise cash. So if I were to reference startups in a defense capacity specifically... And now we're starting to work increasingly with defense and aerospace startups naturally because of because of the background. What I would say is that we will tend to try to target startups and technologies that have dual application. And by that, I mean they've got technologies or business models that are applicable both in a civilian sense and in a military sense. I mean, there are many, many reasons for that. But ultimately, if you're raising funding, there are some VCs, there are many VCs that are still averse to working in defense or at least the pointier end of defense. So you need to show that you've got civilian application as well, and you've got different avenues to do that. Also, um, at the same time, however, there are some really cool initiatives that will support you at the extremely low TRLs that aren't available if you don't work in defense. So I really like uh, one of our startups, our newest one, which is doing runtime assurance for autonomous systems. They've just secured a data grant. Loads of people who, who are listening to this podcast would have, would have worked with data in the past, I'm sure. 
I really like the data grant system because unlike the Innovate UK smart grants, you don't need a matched element of private equity to go along with it. So where we might raise a 750k Innovate UK smart grant for someone, suddenly now we need to raise a whole pot of money in, in the private equity world to match that before they can actually start delivering. And that's a complex challenge if you were to take a founder in isolation spinning out of a university where they're going to secure hundreds of thousands from when the whole point is that they're in that critical support gap where they can't raise hundreds of thousands. Whereas the DASA grants and some of the more defense-oriented support mechanisms don't require matched funding. They'll take higher risks on lower TRLs. And that can sometimes push you up the TRL ladder to the kind of mid-sectors where you can then diversify a little bit into civilian applications to get yourself all the way up to TRL 9, and then you can sell into both. That is like a very unvalidated view of how I think you can climb the TRL ladder as a defense dual application startup. And is it fair to say that in the past, a lot of VCs have been averse to any defense element? or And is that changing our views, moving that they're happy for dual use or single use? investments? It's definitely changing. I wouldn't say the whole ecosystem is moving into being massively supportive of defense, but certainly what we're seeing are a growing number of defense-specific funds, a growing number of corporate VCs. So companies like Airbus, for instance, have their own investment arm that will go and look specifically for the joining those types of investment rounds where they're very defense-focused, growing number of government resources going into investors like UK I2S or DASA, who are bringing out new mechanisms of supporting companies like loans and things all the time. I'd say this, the ecosystem is softening because it's becoming more morally acceptable to be involved in defence with everything that's going on politically. But it's not, it's not a massive transition going on and there are still plenty of VCs that don't want to be involved in that kind of thing. So you do need to read the small print as you're fundraising. But I think generally, if you're working on the softer side of defense, which most startups are, if you're working in training, simulation, data analysis, generally there, there are no issues in that in that sense. I don't know if you want to say anything about your master's, because that all sounds quite interesting. You wrote a paper, didn't you? The one in entrepreneurship I wrote on the military industrial complex and the ability of SMEs to get into some of those larger prime contracts. You interviewed quite a few heads of industry about the problem. So I even went and got a Freedom of Information Act to find out everybody that had secured a DASA grant that year back in uh, 2018. And then I went and, and wrote to them all and interviewed most of them. I think DASA was, at the time, if I recall, I think some of the DASA money was coming through Horizon funding. So the argument that the MOD might make is that, well, actually, that money was always invested in those companies with a view to them being dual purpose because of the source of the money. And I think that's the same thing that maybe a VC would say when you're talking about the rationale behind whether they will or won't support different sectors. Nobody wants to invest in pornography, gambling, those sorts of things. And defense is sometimes on that list. That actually is not necessarily a choice made by the VC. It's probably made by their limited partners. So the VCs have to fundraise as well. And the money that goes into the VCs comes from the LPs. And the LPs have got different remits. Some of those are corporates, some of those are pension funds, some of those are family offices, and they've all got different restrictions around how they are willing to operate. And that's usually where the, the VC restrictions come from probably early days of DASA but but what were your sort of main findings of the sort of I guess how the terrain supported early stage startups? Yeah I think at the time and bear in mind I'm going back about five years here DASA was supporting the very early TRLs and there were loads of initiatives at the top end like J-Hub, the RCO, loads of kind of rapid entry systems to get tech out to the front lines and then not a great deal in the middle and that was really what I was finding was that there were quite a few people who had taken on DASA grants. They then spend their time and resource fulfilling the deliverables of those grants. And then they don't 
really have a nice follow-on mechanism to be able to get up through the mid-level TRLs. I do believe anecdotally that there are better systems in place at the moment in the mid-sector. And I think there's been a number of new initiatives in the last few years as the ecosystem has matured to be able to support the mid-sector. And when I refer to some of those organizations like UK I2S, that's an investment arm set up by the UK government that has a number of remits, one of which is funding from the MOD. And so what you might see and what you do see are companies that have come up with DASA funding and then they'll go and apply for VC funding from someone like UK I2S, which does have MOD backing. And then they'll say, okay, that's great. You've had a DASA thing and they'll do their own due diligence and they might invest in that company along with a number of other ecosystem VCs and bring it up to the next stage and you can mature your proposition in that way. So I do think the number of support mechanisms has increased, but I won't speak too much to specifics on that for fear of not having a full picture there. Yeah, I mean, we, we did speak to DAS in the last season and, and I think they were kind of aware of their limitations and, and how do they, you know, they're very aware of the gap, right? So they're very aware that they needed to do more to help help close the gap. And it's always a, it's a dilemma because I think they didn't want to turn to VC effectively. And yeah. They don't, they don't want to be that decision maker. But it, I think one thing that's, that strikes me, I don't know what Tom thinks, but I, I think the problem is if you're going in and saying, I think I've got a great idea, I think this idea would be helpful to the military kind of i think you're really at a disadvantage if you don't understand the military complex i think so but what i will emphasize is that i think that military industrial complex is changing in a number of senses so i've mentioned uk i2s there are others that are funding that mid gap as well national security investment fund nato's just set up a fund there are a plethora of them and some of those have got accelerators and things as well and different support mechanisms there's a sort of growing resource support network around that and so the military industrial network is sort of changing a little bit to try and hold those startups up there are a few other interesting factors in there like i think i mentioned to you yesterday colin about this revolving door principle where you get these very high ranking officers moving from the military into industry into the top end of the primes what i've seen in the last year or two is more of the startups being able to access those individuals as well because while there aren't huge salaries and things, the appeal of working in the tech sector at an early stage and the excitement of being involved in that journey is in itself so appealing that you can sometimes get those individuals onto the advisory boards and things. And so you can start to disrupt that pattern of revolving door principle, supporting only the large primes of not having any support in the mid sector, in the kind of middle part of the journey and so on. So I hope what we'll see over the coming years in unison with maybe some disruption to the procurement system will be an increasing number of startups being able to get into defense and being able to access those large contracts, maybe in partnership with some of the primes. You know, it's, sometimes it's not enough having a great idea. Sometimes the very problem is the idea is great. We just don't know how to implement it. Again, again go back to the innovators dilemma. It, it may reduce hours on existing systems and therefore that's not, that's not going to fly. It may be that we don't know how to integrate that to existing systems. We have to change the fundamental model, how we work this thing or it makes something else redundant that we've already spent a lot of money on. You know, so sometimes the good idea, we've got to get beyond just the good idea and get to, like, how does this actually get, get implemented? There's a really good comment on this, uh, which, I'll, which I stole from someone yesterday, which perfectly relates and I think summarizes what you said there, Colin. So it's about day zero investing, but I think that's the same thing as day zero founding and building of new startup companies. And that day zero is investing is about operating on low ego ideas with a very high conviction on execution. And I think that's very, very true to real life. So by low ego ideas, we mean that you, you can't be too tied to the exactness of what you're developing. You will go through a number of pivots and maneuvers to be able to settle into your market and find a good product market fit. And you can't be too precious about that. Founders have to be very coachable in that sense. 
And then the fact that you have to pair that with a very high conviction on execution is like you do have to drive your way through and have and, and so it's that strange pairing of this ultimate conviction that you're at you absolutely have something wonderful and you're going to go all the way with it and you're going to drive it all the way forward combined with this humility to be able to be coachable and maneuver around that in some senses i mean i'm glad you said that because twice i've looked at building a pitch deck for ideas for products whatever it might have been and it is that like how would you build a pitch deck when you know you are fully aware that the product will pivot and change then how do you give you that hockey stick yeah it's going to make loads of money don't worry vcs you're safe but also, you know your industry well enough to know that, look, your idea is fine, but it is going to change because when you go and speak to the clients and customers, they're going to want something different. So it's almost an impossible conundrum for someone looking to raise money to go and approach VCs because each VC will be looking for different levels of confidence and humility in different measures as well. <laughs> there's so much to cover there. So there's a, there's a really wonderful professor called Chris Coleridge, who's the, like, one of the professors of entrepreneurship at Cambridge. And he does a lecture on pitching while doubting. And I love that phrase. You're not lying or inflating what you're saying. It's just that even while you're pitching what you're pitching, it's normal. It's okay that probably in the background, there's some doubt that you've got around the, the real potential of what you're pitching. And what that means is that you know that it's going to have to shift and shimmy a little bit as you get through. And I think the thing that should give you confidence to be able to do that is the knowledge that the investors also know that truth. They know that in a year's time, your product or your business model is not going to look the same as what they see today, which is where the cliche comes from that really they're investing in the team. And so all you can do is back up your slides with masses of data and be confident that what you're saying is legit enough and you've done what you can. We often get this question with financial models. Okay, I've been asked to produce a three-year, five-year forecast of like revenues and things. Obviously, any, any kind of like educated investor will understand that it's built on fiction. But what's important is that you did what you could to get the data. So if I'm pitching, and I use this example because I had a company that did, this is my third startup, it took me three attempts. My second one was in licensing and sponsorship. And we used to do a lot of co-branded luxury watches and things with people like Inga Rugby. How do I know if a new limited edition watch line is going to sell or not? Like, how do you know how many you're going to sell? How can you put that into a forecast? <laughs> what you can do is turn around to an investor and go, well, I don't know, but... The Jaguar watch sold this many and the, some of the Braemont models sold that many and some of the Breitling models that were special editions sold that many. If you can get the truth data on those points and average it out and then justify why you think you can or can't achieve the same, bit more, bit less for whatever reason, at least there's thought put into it and you're not throwing numbers out there. What's very frustrating is when we see pitch decks that say, okay, my market is 4 billion or whatever. Well, and, and we're going to be a 400 million annual revenue company because we would only need to achieve x amount of the market to make that much like how hard can that be there's no like tangible structure to, to the way in which they reach those numbers and we spend a lot of time trying to put data behind revenue models which is a lot harder than it sounds to be able to justify that like you did your best when you put it together and that's all that can be expected and the investors know that and that's that and then they're really looking at the people after that so there's maybe some tick boxing involved that all the numbers are as legit as they can be and everybody lives in this constant unspoken awareness that it's very speculative. So like when you're giving a set of orders, you're, you do your orders and estimate process and you do your analysis of so what, so what, so what. As long as you, when you go and get drilled on your analysis, as long as you can back it up, that's what you're saying is it's just it's got to have some sort of logical foundation. Yeah, no plan survives first contact and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. So, yeah, it's exactly the same. I don't know. I mean, I think there's people that that's the ultimate high conviction thing. You need to be able to say, look, I'm, what I'm doing is really going to be good. This is really this is really a thing. Like maybe when it's not polished yet, but we're doing our best. And we are the people who will make it polished. And now is the right time for it because, and it's disruptive because, and we've got this data behind that. And it's just the best you can do. 
I've got a question that won't survive first contact, um, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And it's, it's around the CFT approach. So obviously you're looking to sort of nurture organizations through, which might be at various different stages in their little startup life. What's a CFT really approach? Well, no, I, I guess our listeners won't really appreciate the, your, your TLAs, mate. So let's, I'm just trying to help uh, elaborate on your TLAs and bring the audience along. Yeah. Cambridge Future Tech's approach is built on supporting that extremely early stage. Our view is that it's really difficult, as I've mentioned, to deploy capital prior to what's referred to as the pre-seed stage, which is like the earliest possible investment point in a company's life cycle. And so if you can't deploy capital prior to that point, because there's nothing, there's not enough to measure to make a decision that a VC could rely on. And secondly, the timelines don't align with what the VCs are expecting their returns on. They can't add a year or two onto the cycle. They've got to get their money back to their investors in five years, 10 years, whatever. If you can't support anything prior to pre-seed, then how can you access that suppressed IP back at day zero? So we set up a slightly different business model. And instead of setting up as a venture capitalist fund, we set up as a normal private limited company and we raised money on balance sheet. Essentially, we're a startup, helping startups start up, as is the cliche. And by setting up that governance mechanism, what it meant was that we had ultimate freedom to operate at any points during the life cycle of the startup. We could operate all the way back at day zero and maybe something to do with the military background, but have a seemingly unlimited risk appetite to come in and look at things that are that are just nobody else would look at. I love that idea that we'll find a moonshot where nobody else is looking. But equally, it's our job as a company to de-risk those propositions. So we come in at day zero. We work with founders, professors, inventors, people who are coming up with innovations very, very, very early stage. We diligence them in our own sense, often with masses of market research, but we're also diligencing the people, the tech, and the other aspects. When we find one that, that matches the thesis and there's a good synergy with the founders, and that's very important, then we will look to co-found a company with those individuals. If there's technology that needs to be spun out from the research environment, we'll work with the legal teams to get that done. And we will build those companies from scratch. And then no two of them are the same, which is why we can't really set up as an accelerator. We set up as a venture builder so that every single case we look at, we deploy our resource where it's needed within that structure. Sometimes a team needs building and there's very specific elements that need to come together within that. Always there's governance that needs putting in place, market research that needs to be done, customer conversations that need to be had, and momentum that needs to be gained around silly things like branding and website and starting to get all those bits put together, which is when the company really starts to feel very tangible. And then it's about putting together a, we're very heavy on putting together a narrative that underpins a pitch to allow the companies to go out and fundraise effectively to be able to scale rapidly. And the VCs are looking for companies. Every single company they invest in needs to be able to return the entire portfolio. So the power laws involved in venture capital investing require that not many of the companies they invest in will, will make it huge. Not many of them will become Andrew sized And thus, the few that do must cover for the returns of the ones that don't. And so every single one of them needs to have the potential to be huge or they won't touch it. I mean, in a nutshell, what would you advise organizations to sort of, which stage would they need to get to before they speak to you? Or is it, do you get people with just a, a single idea or a napkin and you get people that have got a bit of revenue and is it everything? A bit of both. As a generalization, if it exists, it's probably too late for us. If it exists as a company with a team already, you know, with some elements of funding and, and they've secured grants and things, if they're off and they've got that traction, then they're probably a little bit late for us. But there are quite a few companies whereby the proposition is they look like they're further ahead, but they're not. There are things that 
look like the company's more advanced. They may be pitching for money already, but the reality is they haven't put the right team together. The tech hasn't been spun out of the university or the research group. The commercial model is not tried and tested, and there's no real security around how they're going to scale. So sometimes a company can be presented very beautifully, but beneath the surface, it is still a day zero company. However, we also do a lot of work with corporates now. So we do a lot of partnering with corporates. I really like that, whereby we will get a remit off a corporate to look for a specific gap in, say, their third horizon tech strategy that they've not been able to fill that gap. And we'll go out and scout in the research environment to find bits of tech that could fill that gap. We will then, on their behalf, we will spin out a company and create it, and they'll keep an ownership stake in that company. That will mean they have access to that tech when they need to on that third horizon strategy. That's quite an interesting one for us because we get very specific tech remits and we can really get into the into the nitty gritty of which research groups across the UK and beyond are actually working on those topics. That was something that's sort of relatively new to me. I didn't realise there's a whole world of corporate venture capitalism that existed, which it's big companies going out either trying to address internal problems or acquiring strategic technologies. And, you know, it's a whole other world, isn't it? Yeah. And what, what you'll find is that it depends on industry as to how prolific that is. Generally, where the business model needs innovating, there'll be more of that type of activity. So for instance, if you're looking at tobacco or the oil sector, mining, all of those industries have very lofty net zero decarbonization goals, those sorts of things. And then they need tech very, very quickly to help them achieve those targets, essentially so that they can perform in front of their own shareholders. And so they will go to extreme measures. They will start to deploy capital through investing. They will start to take part in venture building. They'll start to spin technologies in and out. They'll be doing all the really interesting, innovative things. Because if a company has a very stable business model, it takes a very innovative board to be able to put together a strategy to keep innovating beyond the fear of the innovator's dilemma and start to go out and take some risks on corporate VC and things like that. I mean, I think that was a really useful overview of kind of how the VC market is working for defense startups and through youth startups. Hopefully that gives people some idea of options available to them. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly say from my perspective, it's been, I think, invaluable. And what I hope this will become is that resource that people will listen to now, but maybe they are still in the military or part of a bigger corporate organization. At some point during their career, they are look to transition and maybe look to do their own startup and they can come back to this episode and rejog their memory. And I won't suggest Owen, that you're going to get inundated with people messaging you, but maybe, you know, at some point you may get some value from doing this as well. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Tom. And honestly, it's what is nice about the startup ecosystem is that people are always willing to give their time. Anyone who wants to drop us a note, have a call, get any introductions, that's absolutely fine. And every startup that I've built has been based on pestering 50 or 60 advisors to help me refine my business model before I rolled it out. So it is the right way to go about doing things and be proactive about that. That's great. I mean, it's a whole new episode on just how you built it, I think. And like you say, because I think there's a lot of value in terms of just your approach, that use to utilization of LinkedIn and, and building building your slide decks of business that we could go into a whole new episode, but let's, let's leave it there. Thank you again. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll get you on in the future. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> I'm so glad we brought up that last point about pitch decks, the hockey stick curve and the challenge of being honest versus aspirational, because it is something that's, I mean, you, you've had me whinging to you about it, Colin, before and that other people I've done of like, could someone tell me how to, structure a pitch deck where i'm being i'm being <laughs> myself and being true to reality but also saying the words they want to hear so it's really nice hearing owen give me the ground truth on that 
yeah, some of this is a different world, and it's definitely good to have people that have done it many times. Also great, Tom, that when I invite someone on, I see you get so animated that you run away with the conversation. I think that's always a good sign. Yeah, it's, it's all of it's fascinating. It's a, I've said it's, it's a dark art. It's a yeah. weird world that is underneath the surface that is integral to almost everything we do, every company we engage with, whatever it might be, unless they've been to bootstrap, which is you know fewer and fewer these days. Yeah and, yeah, and and I think what we didn't cover, which is a whole probably another podcast there is or another episode, is how government institutions are actually seeing they they've got their own venture capital arms. You know, you got sort of kind mm-hmm. of corporate venture capital being sort of like government venture capital. And so when you have the CIA investing in startups <laughs> this is a route to try and foster innovation as opposed to just the grant funding method you know we don't know if it works there must be some return and sometimes it's like well it didn't have a direct impact for that organization but it had an impact somewhere in the economy that's fine yeah no. the fear is you know how does the defense or how the government get the balance between and I'm, I'm sure they do it very independently but this is a government-backed company bidding for something versus a wholly privately owned company bidding for the same contract. I'm sure it would be done purely on the merits of the contracts, but it, yeah, it would, yeah. would the privately owned company feel a little bit hard done by if if it's owned thirty percent by a government entity? Yeah, there's a bunch of issues. I mean, but I think I think they generally take a a small, you know, they're not so like controlling state, and a lot of the time it's sort of like seed funding. Um, it's like a fire and forget concept. Yeah, I think it's just looking at. As we discussed, there are many tax dollars spent in defence and not all of it is used very effectively. So actually, these sums of money are relatively small in the scheme of things. Something I do feel passionate about, we're great. The Brits are great at having brilliant ideas and a concept and then someone else taking it on. And we've seen that. There's always good examples of where we have been successful in making a business. Arm is one of the sort of poster children for that. But we, as a culture, we're not very good at that. Yeah. The West Coast US is it comes with some baggage, but their mentality is very different. And we need to kind of think about things in the way they do a bit more. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I don't, definitely don't disagree with that. Go on, Colin, we're coming to the end of the series. Just two more left. Was, yeah. Just two more. A couple of great final episodes lined up. Yeah. And a returning guest for the last episode. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. Look, if you enjoyed this, fun, valuable, then all I ask as ever, Let's get yourself on LinkedIn. Look for the Warfighter podcast. Follow that. And then if you do see any of our episodes come up, if you get a chance, give it a little cheeky like or a comment or a share if you're feeling particularly verbose. <laughs> Is that the right context? We would really appreciate it. Brilliant. Well, until next episode, Colin. See you then. Bye.